0: back and unfortunately it appears that although we've uh, highly touted our colleague and friend dr andy he's not going to be able to join us today let's just talk then about uh, what seymour hirsch had to say at the mondavi center last week he said many of the same things he voiced to Stephen manganini at the sacramento Bee. the Bee's staff writer noted prior to the visit if the united states attacks iran don't say seymour hirsch didn't tell you so In his October 8th New Yorker article, Hirsch reported the Bush administration is contemplating surgical strikes on Revolutionary Guard facilities in Tehran and elsewhere, which the administration claims have been the source of attacks on Americans in Iraq. By the way, when asked about Iraq, Cy Hirsch basically said our choice comes down to uh, A, getting out today, or B, getting out tomorrow. He uh, noted both to Steve Manganini at the B and to Catherine Olmsted and everyone in the audience at Mondavi, that he himself has continued to write about the possible war with Iran because he believes the Bush administration is determined to get into that country before it leaves office. We're going to make an effort to get uh, author James Bamford onto this program. We were speaking to Mr. Bamford last year about his similar efforts to to sound the gong and, and warn people about what the administration has in mind for Iran. Anyway, we were great admirers of Seymour Hirsch on this program. We've quoted from him extensively in the past, and we wholeheartedly agree with what he's got to say about the state of American journalism. We, uh, we're very sad about the fact that uh, Cy Hirsch is considered a special type of journalist, an investigative journalist. He noted how important it was for him to use anonymous sources, though that he's been attacked by administration officials dating back to Henry Kissinger. But he has defended his use of anonymous sources, saying, I'm like a vampire. I suck my blood at night and on weekends, early and late. For me, to leave my name at a government office at 3 p.m. is a bite of death. The B article noted that Hirsch said, Profit-driven corporate media ownership is taking its toll on investigative reporting, which he says is expensive, time-consuming, and a tremendous risk. There's a good chance you'll end up chasing your tail. Anyway, we'll have more to say about uh, Seymour Hersh's visit to Mondavi, hopefully next week. We're still planning to come back and talk about uh, what happened and is happening over in Burma slash Myanmar. It was noted in uh, New Scientist magazine that uh, high-resolution satellite images have been increasing pressure on Burma's ruling junta. After several weeks of protests led by monks against the dictatorship... It remains difficult to determine what's going on in the country, but people have been using the Internet and cell phones to transmit reports and photos, at least up to the point where the junta responded by cutting off Internet access. In response, the American Association for the Advancement of Science Geospatial Technologies Project in Washington, D.C., requested images from satellite companies, which human rights groups will then use to amass evidence of violence that was used to quash protests said Lars Bromley of the AAAS. It will give them a sense that the world is watching. Of course, they hope to deter the hunter from further atrocities. Now, on the flip side of the technology coin, we have the following item. Did you notice this earlier this month, uh, this article in the Washington Post on uh, mining travel data? How about this? The U.S. government has compiled dossiers on millions of Americans traveling overseas, including their destination and the contents of their luggage. That's according to the Washington Post. The Department of Homeland Security intends to retain the records for 15 years as part of its efforts to screen travelers for security risks. Department officials called the data gathering operation an investigative tool and said, law-abiding travelers have nothing to fear but critics say the record-keeping violates privacy laws. The federal government is trying to build a surveillance society, said Civil Liberties activist John Gilmore of San Francisco. Gilmore obtained his own dossier and discovered that it included the notation that his carry-on bag contained a book about marijuana. In a related story, we would like to reiterate that apparently uh, earlier this month, two months after vowing to roll back the new wiretapping powers won by the Bush administration, it turns out the congressional Democrats made concessions that would extend some of the key powers granted to the National Security Agency, or NSA. Uh, Like a year ago, in in the midterm elections, a year ago when we elected a new Congress, Democratic majority, when we turned the Senate over to the Uh, Isn't this a sign that we wanted them to roll back some of this stuff? Well, we we thought it was. Didn't you think it was, dear listener? Well, it'd be nice if they showed some spine. Mr. McMillan? Yeah, it's sad, believe me, missy, when you're born to be a sissy without the feminine five. But I could show my prowess be a lion, not a mouse if I only had the nerve. We have to quote yesterday's Doonesbury, where Mark Slackmire is at a White House press conference asking, uh, five years ago, the country was evenly divided between the two parties, 43% to 43%. Today, Democrats enjoy a 50% to 35% advantage. Is that a referendum on the politics of fear and smear? White House spokesman. No, we think the problem is incompetence, but we're fixing that. Mark. Cool. Are there Benchmarks. Spokesman: No, the president believes competence should be voluntary. All right. To segue from politics into science here, we would quote New Scientist magazine, the current issue on the newsstands, notes that outlawing abortions doesn't stop women from having them, but free access to contraception clearly does. Magazine notes that the most comprehensive survey of global abortion trends since 1995 confirms what many have suspected. Women will continue to seek abortions regardless of whether they are legal or not. It also showed that the fastest way to reduce the number of abortions is to provide access to reliable contraception. The study, which shows the total number of abortions, both legal and illegal, fell worldwide between 1995 and 2000, was published in The Lancet. Tellingly, the article notes that the number of abortions fell almost exclusively in rich countries where terminating a pregnancy is both safe and legal. In poorer countries where access to abortion is often restricted or illegal, there's been very little progress in reducing the number of abortions. Personally, we think this was kind of a no-brainer, but you know, we're, we're glad they've done the studies and now have the hard data. All right, item from the Sacramento Bee, Tuesday, October 16th, by Dorsey Griffith, the Bee Medical writer, notes that, uh, well, this, this is a real shocker. Tobacco industry deceit claimed. You mean to tell me that tobacco companies are misrepresenting the truth? I'm shocked. But quote in the article, cigarette makers tried to undermine evidence that secondhand smoke causes cardiovascular disease, according to a review by a UC Davis physician and scores of once-secret tobacco industry documents. The report, published Monday in the American Heart Association journal Circulation, discredits research paid for by the tobacco industry as attempts to put corporate viability above public health and to downplay scientific findings on the role of secondhand smoke. The report by Eliza Tong of UC Davis and Stanton Glantz, a longtime tobacco researcher at UC San Francisco, also discusses how the industry used questionable research to promote what are allegedly less harmful cigarettes. I don't know. What's most curious about this to me is that, uh, that some people, you know, see this, quote, research, unquote, saying, hey, secondhand smoke's not so bad. And they say, well, you see, the jury's still out on this. Well, it very much depends on who funds the research. I can also vividly remember, you know, a dozen or so years ago, arguing with, uh, with some friends who were, you know, law school types, who were claiming that, no, 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 the smokers' rights groups that were out and they were active, th- these people were, you know, they were not in bed with the tobacco companies. In fact, they had quite a bit of criticism about some of the tobacco uh, uh, industry uh, reports. Well, I said to my friends, you guys are nuts, And it turned out, of course, I was right. The Smokers' Rights, I should put that in quotes, the Smokers' Rights Movement was funded entirely by the tobacco industry, and they basically hired some public relations firms to uh, raise up these astroturf uh, movements. Uh, Astroturf, of course, means fake grassroots movements. And uh, they spent millions of dollars to basically create this out of thin air. And, and, And no, by the way, as far as we know, Will Durst is not in the pay of the tobacco lobby. We, we just know that, you know, Will likes to fire him up. But the, uh, the same methods of, of sowing doubt, uh, planting doubt in your mind about what, you know, seems fairly straightforward is now hard at work on the issue of global warming. Article on the August 13th Newsweek showed a, uh, a beautiful picture of the sun on the cover, noted global warming is a hoax, asterisk. At the asterisk, it said, or so claim well-funded naysayers who still reject the overwhelming evidence of climate change inside the denial machine, article by Sharon Begley. And of course, they're going after Al Gore in a big way right now. We haven't had time to, uh, to, to go over the details of the claims being made about how the in, an inconvenient truth is just filled with errors. But uh, as far as we're concerned, the science we've seen in that looks pretty sound. Noted Newsweek, while naysayers are saying, you know, ice cores from Antarctica show that at the end of the last ice age, temperatures rose before this CO2 level increase. So warming must cause CO2 to rise, not vice versa. Whereas the scientific consensus is that higher temperatures do raise CO2 levels by increasing plant growth, but more CO2 leads to more warming as it traps infrared radiation in the atmosphere. While the naysayers note that The global warming over the past century, as well as weather extremes, reflects nothing more than the climate system's normal variability, whereas the clear scientific consensus is that the current warming is 10 times greater than ever before seen in the geologic record. The chance that the warming is natural is less than 10%. And if you're still among the doubters, how about this item from last week's New Scientist magazine? The extent of the Arctic melt this year has been revealed, and it is worse than anyone thought. Last month, just 4.2 million square kilometers of ice covered the Arctic Ocean. That's 23% less than the previous low record set in 2005, 39% less than the average annual minimum between 1979 and 2000. And of course, keep in mind that a lot of those years between 79 and 2000 probably reflect uh, some of the global warming and increased ice melting. Said Walt Meyer, a member of the team of scientists at the U.S. National Snow and Ice Data Center in Boulder, Colorado. It didn't just break the record; it shattered the record this year. It just obliterated everything else. Even, uh, even, even the Bush, uh, the Bush administration seems to be wavering on this a bit. At least uh, General Gordon Sullivan, former chief of staff of the U.S. Army, wrote uh, last month: "Climate change is and will be a significant threat to our national security." and in a larger sense, to life on Earth. In fact, uh, George Bush at a summit of representatives from leading greenhouse gas-emitting nations called for curbing emissions to be made a long-term goal. He, of course, repeated his opposition to mandatory caps on emissions, noting that each nation must decide for itself how to achieve the results. Yeah, that would be those would be called voluntary reductions, kind of like voluntary competency. And while the naysayers are really well-funded... Uh, A new scientist in an editorial sounded off on this issue. They said, We need climate change skeptics, not because they're right, but because they ask hard questions that lead to deeper knowledge. The latest claims attributed to Fred Singer, the arch exponent of the idea that solar cycles explain everything about climate change, and economist Dennis Avery from the Hudson Institute, that's a think tank in Washington, made headlines with a list of 500 scientists who they say have refuted, quote, at least one element of current mad-made global warming scares. The magazine notes that this is a bit of sleight of hand in the words, in at least one element. And they noted, sadly, that some members of the press have chosen to interpret the release as saying that 500 scientists are doubtful that present global warming is due to human activity. Now, some of those 500 are demanding their names be removed from the list. Joanna Haig of Imperial College in London said, I believe that changes in the sun influence climate, but I've never claimed that solar forcing is responsible for recent global warming. It is mendacious of them to include me in a list of those refuting human activity as the major cause. Climatologist Michael Mann of Penn State added, This is a dishonest and cynical misrepresentation of my findings and views and those of many of my colleagues. Another absurd recent claim attributed to Singer, is that the, quote, widely touted consensus of 2,500 scientists on the UN Intergovernment Panel on Climate Change is an illusion. Most of the panelists have no scientific qualifications. Note of the magazine, this stuff is bad not only for science, but also for the skeptical cause. No one wants to silence skeptics. We need skepticism. We just wish they were better at it. All right, and in a somewhat related story, we have the following from New Scientist magazine. Using hydrogen to power vehicles could free us from our reliance on fossil fuels and water is its obvious source, but how to get one from the other? Now, a semiconductor has been discovered that uses energy from sunlight to do this efficiently. The usual way to get hydrogen from water is by splitting the water molecules with an electric current, but this is inefficient and expensive. For years, researchers have hoped to harness sunlight to do the job using a process analogous to photosynthesis. Some light-sensitive semiconductors can do this, but they too are very inefficient. Now, Martin Demuth and colleagues at the Max Planck Institute for Bioorganic Chemistry at Molheim, Germany, have found a solar-powered water splitter that does this more efficiently. It still only uses 4% of the visible light that hits it, but that's double previous efficiency. It's a promising development. We'll try to continue to monitor that one. Everybody out in the country with some knucklehead shows up with his dog and proceeds to, like, uh, you know, scare away every bit of wildlife that previously had been hanging around? Well, from the uh, September 8th edition of New Scientist, and we're certainly relying on New Scientist a lot today, but hey, the world's premier science magazine in our book. On this topic, they noted, Even when owners walk their dogs on leashes, they still manage to frighten away nearly half the birds in natural parklands. Land managers in several countries, including the UK and Australia, have responded to birders' worries that dogs may be scaring away local wildlife by banning the animals from sensitive wild areas. Dog owners maintain there's little hard evidence to support this view and are angry over the bans. So Peter Banks and Jessica Bryant at the University of New South Wales in Sydney tested the effects of dogs on bird sightings at 90 different sites in in both regional parks where dogs were allowed on a leash and in neighboring national parks where dogs are banned. They they observed persons walking alone and a person with a dog. After each group walked past, the researchers counted the number of birds they saw or heard within 50 meters. Walking a dog was followed by an immediate exodus of nearby birds, leading 41% fewer individual birds on average. People alone, even two people, had half the impact. Walking a dog without a leash is likely to be even worse, says Banks, who said the birds must perceive the dogs as potential predators. Note the magazine, and this is a British publication, he anticipates dog owners will react badly to his findings. And we mentioned a couple weeks back about the 50th anniversary of Sputnik. Unless lest you think that the Russians <laughs> have run out of firsts in space, well, think again. Earlier this week, the first creatures to be conceived in space were born. And this was another first for Russia, the country which managed the first satellite, Sputnik in 1957, and the first dog in space, Laika, as well as the first human in space, Yuri Gagarin. Well, (laughs) the Russians can now claim to the first mother in space. The mother is a cockroach who became pregnant during the flight of the biosatellite called Photon M. Wrote the Sydney Herald, We recently received the first batch of 33 cockroaches conceived in microgravity, announced Dmitry Alyakshin, a director of the Institute of Biomedical Problems, a typically mysterious Russian title for a space agency. He said the cockroaches were sealed in special containers during their circling of the Earth and a video camera filmed them during flight. This does not seem to have inhibited them, though the babies do look a little different. Apparently, these cockroaches turned darker earlier than the Earthbound varieties. We're personally, we're glad they didn't try this experiment on the International Space Station because an infestation of cockroaches would have been pretty tough to get an exterminator up to fix. All right, let's take a short break and come back and talk more about whatever we damn well please. I'm Douglas Everett, you're listening to Radio Parallax.